Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans uh, chapter 12. I'd like us to spend a few weeks uh, in this passage uh, talking about something uh, I think we all uh, need to hear and need to learn and need to practice. Uh, It's one of those uh, difficult passages, not difficult to understand, uh, but difficult to accept uh, and to embrace and to obey. Uh, and that is the teaching and how to how to respond to those who are uh, against us or how to respond as Christians to those who try to perpetrate evil against us or uh, if you want to even bring it down a notch, uh, if we wouldn't call it evil, than uh, just those that are committing wrong against us. What is our uh, response or our responsibility uh, in that? And that's why we read the Lord's words earlier uh, out of Luke chapter 6, because really what Paul tells us in the last uh, part of Romans 12 is really what Jesus was saying in Luke 6. So we're just going to spend a few weeks going over uh, this passage and really fine detail, um, because I think it's one of the uh, most practical ways that people can know that we're a believer, uh, that we're a Christ follower uh, in how we respond to them when they're not treating us well. Uh, so that's why I wanted to look at this. Let's have a word of prayer first. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit Uh, would illuminate our understanding so we can understand what you're saying to us. Uh, I pray that your spirit would break down any resistance we might have uh, to following our Lord's commands because it may seem difficult. Uh, It may even seem laughable to some uh, that this is how we are to respond to those who are mistreating us. But Father, my prayer is that our hearts would catch a glimpse of the higher glory, of the deeper majesty, of the bigger purpose of why we exist, uh, that oftentimes uh, you allow evil to come into our lives. You allow those who do wrong against us to come into our lives. And you do that under your loving, sovereign control. Uh, Even though we struggle with understanding that mystery, we know that it's true. Uh, And we need you to increase our faith, uh, to accept that and to believe it. And Father, we need you to do a work of grace in our lives. To make us humbly bow before your word and your commands. Uh, Because it doesn't come naturally to want to obey your word. Uh, Even as your children, sometimes we struggle uh, to wholeheartedly embrace what you're asking us to do uh, because it leaves us feeling vulnerable. It leaves us uh, in a position where we have to really trust you and we really have to put our money where our faith is, so to speak. So, Father, I just pray all these things. Pray that you would just work in our hearts, work in our lives. Give us a deep love for your word and just the radical nature of what it means to be a Christ follower. Uh, Help us to see that even in our struggles, there's a bigger picture than just our struggles. Uh, That you have plans, you have purposes, uh, you have meaning. You're trying to reach other people through our struggles. Uh, 
So help us to emulate our Lord. Uh, Help us to desire to imitate uh, his words and his deeds uh, when he was mistreated. Uh, So, Father, I just ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's interesting. uh, I'm just going to kind of stroll through this. And when we run out of time, we run out of time. So we'll do what we can do here. Um, It's interesting our Lord's or what Peter, the Apostle Peter, said about our Lord Jesus when he was mistreated. Uh, And I would I would say turn there, but I don't want you to turn there because I'm not going to quote it word perfectly. And I don't want you to see that I'm not quoting it perfectly. So don't turn to first Peter two twenty three. Maybe just jot it down in your margins. But it says in essence uh, that when our Lord was reviled, he did not retaliate with reviling words of his own. But he continued to entrust himself to his heavenly father, for he knew that his heavenly father was the righteous judge of all. And it is interesting, we read this morning in our Sunday school class, we're doing a study on a biblical understanding of depression. Uh, You're welcome to join us. Uh, It's in my office on Sunday mornings. But we're looking this morning at how Jesus never got angry about the wrongs that were perpetrated against him. But he did get angry when false teachers led his people down destructive paths. And he did get angry when his father's name was not honored and glorified, such as when the money changers were in the temple. Remember, what did he do? He got angry and he overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, I wouldn't recommend we do that. But I'm not even sure I know what a money changer is. Maybe like in the airport when you're supposed to exchange your currency. I don't know. But the Lord's anger is always perfectly righteous. That's what Peter was saying. That in his humanity, Jesus entrusted all wrath, vengeance, punishment, judgment, anger, all of those things for those that were wronging him. He entrusted all of that judgment stuff into his father's hands because he knew his father would righteously judge at the right time, the right place, in the right way. Because we know the Apostle James, James chapter 3, I'll have it up there later. uh, But James tells us that man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God requires. See, the problem when I try to exact quotation marks righteousness when I'm wronged is that I'm a sinner and that my righteousness is always going to be tainted with my sinfulness. Sometimes on rare occasions. I may perceive that I have been wronged when really I haven't. That happens once in a blue moon. Right. I perceive that I've been wronged. And so I will go on the war path because I'm going to write that wrong. Uh, But see how that the Lord says that's not really the right way to go. Uh, Anger and wrath and retaliation are what forms of judgment. I'm making a judgment. A wrong has been committed, actual or perceived, and I'm going to correct that wrong. But. 
the Lord in Scripture shows us that there's a better way. This is interesting. I came across this. I read this quotation. You know, I love a good quote. I have a whole pile of quotes. I read them. I type them up. I print them out. I cut them out in little designs and I keep them in a stack. Sometimes because I'm really weird, I'll actually go through my pile of quotes when I need a little pick me up. But I read this. and I thought, ooh, who, who said this? So Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Bernie. Who said this is Teddy Roosevelt. He lived back when dinosaurs roamed the earth. But but look at what he said. Doesn't this describe today? The things that will destroy America are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty first, the love of soft living and the get rich theory of life. That could be today. Wow. Maybe nothing's changed since uh, the early 1900s. But I thought that was interesting. But the same things that he fears will destroy America, those same things can destroy the Christian's life. If the Christian doesn't have the right goals in mind, if the Christian isn't thinking, and I think this is on your outline, if the thinking of the Christian is not fenced in by Scripture, I guess we would say, if my thinking on certain issues, such as what do I do when I'm wronged, If it's not guided by the boundaries of what the scriptures say, then I'm going to be going down the wrong path as a Christian. It takes a lot of self-discipline to do what the Lord is asking us to do in this passage in Luke 6 or 1 Peter 2 or in Romans 12, 14 through 21. But what is self-discipline? I was looking at you because... Uh, I think your mom posted a football picture, right? Or something. Did you know that? She's posting pictures of you all the time. She has a real problem. Uh, No. But I thought of sports and I thought of discipline. I mean, look at the athletes at the Olympics. Unless they're from Russia and they're doping. Oops, sorry, did I say that? Uh, They're disciplined, aren't they? They've given up almost everything to achieve those goals. It's a willingness to subordinate personal desires and objectives to those that are selfless and divine to subordinate that which is attractive and easy to that which is right and necessary. You say, why are you talking about self-discipline? Well, first of all, the fruit of the spirit is Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I know you say it like I do. Self-control. We don't like to talk about it. Look at me. I'm a picture of self-control. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, ooh, he is the model of self-control. Look at that muffin top. How does he do it? But it is interesting. It is an attribute of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, those fruits of the Spirit... When you look at the way that's written in Galatians 5, what that's saying is at the moment of salvation, I have been given every resource to exhibit all of those attributes in my life. I have to learn how to, you know, exhibit those. But self-control is something. It's an attribute. Self-discipline and self-control is a divine, godly, spiritual attribute. Uh, And did our Lord exhibit tremendous self-control? 
especially when he was wronged? How, how, I know, and here's what we do. I know what you're thinking, Eddie and Patty and Nancy. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but he was God. That was easy for him. When, when they mocked him and made fun of him and they were plotting to kill him and they were always sending people to, to challenge him and undermine his authority and ridiculing him. Well, he was God, so it was no big deal for him not to. Yes, he was God, but he was also what? 100% like you and me. And by the way, folks, Philippians 2 tells us That he laid aside, he did not lay aside his divine attributes when he came to earth. That would have been impossible, right? Jesus can never not be God. But what did he lay aside? It's called the kenosis. That's the fancy word. It sounds like a town in Wisconsin, but it's not. The kenosis. He laid aside the free, independent use of those divine attributes while he was on earth. Wow. He never stopped being God, but he said, for these 33 years, I won't act like God unless the Father wills it and enables it. Wow. If that was me, I would have been thinking, dude, if you only knew what I could do. But he won't let me. But, you know, there was none of that either. But that's really amazing, isn't it? Self-control. He exhibited it perfectly. Does that mean he never got angry? Did our Lord ever get angry? Yeah, we see that in the scriptures, but it was a righteous anger. Anger over anything that would anger his father angered him. Otherwise, it was love. It was prayer. It was blessing, even on those who persecuted him. And by the way, when he was hanging on the cross and he said to those who were crucifying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. That was that what he was saying was not that they were instantly forgiven for what they were doing. That was a prayer. That was a prayer, which later was answered in the affirmative in the book of Acts. When thousands who were there that day at the crucifixion believed the message of the apostles and embraced the very Christ that they had crucified as Lord and Savior. His prayer from the cross was answered. But even in his great moment of greatest suffering, he did not retaliate, not even with his words. But he prayed. He prayed because he knew that those that hated him, that those that were persecuting, those that were wrong him, he knew their ultimate spiritual need. And he was in tune with his father's agenda. I'm sure my own earthly agenda would not include being nailed to a cross after having been beaten to an inch of my life. That would not be my agenda. And we know that the Lord prayed in the garden in his humanity. If it's possible, Heavenly Father, please don't let this happen. But if it's your will, then it will be my will. Self-discipline. So when we're talking about responding in a godly way to those who wrong us, it takes tremendous self-discipline. We haven't read the passage yet, but in Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, where we're going to camp out for a few weeks, what Paul is trying to do is to keep us from making making an emotional response when we're wronged. 
That's what those eight verses are all about. When you are wronged, I don't want you to make a quick-tempered, rash, emotional response to the person who has wronged you. That's what those verses are really. uh, And as you look at that, verse 21 is really the pinnacle of that passage. Everything in that passage is aiming toward verse 21 of Romans 12. And you can say it with me without even looking because you already know it. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we're going to be spending a few weeks in camp. Good and evil. I was going to say the garden of good and evil. That's not good. We'll come up with something. So Christian self-discipline carries a deeper meaning than just a regular definition of self-discipline. So the fruit of the spirit that I'm supposed to exhibit of self-discipline, I think this is on your outline too, is obedience to the word of God. The fruit of self-discipline or self-control is a willingness to subordinate everything in our lives. Physical, social, emotional, intellectual, moral, spiritual, to God's will, to God's control, and for God's glory. Simple enough, right? Everything you are, everything you have, everything you want, it's all for God. That's easy enough, right? No problem. We should just quit right there. Go and live in peace. No, it's not easy, is it? It's hard. I'm just going to tell you straight up. I'm going to tell you what I know you're thinking. It is hard to obey God. It's hard. Not only do I have to wrestle with the world and have to wrestle with the devil. Worst of all, I got to wrestle with myself. And I'm huge. I don't know about you. Some of you are very internally calm people. And I always envy that. I am a very, I'm always, I don't know, there's always something going on in here. There's always something going on in here. I do my best not to let it leak out, but sometimes it comes out. And you just try, it's like the toothpaste you squeeze and it comes out and you're like trying to put it back in there. And that doesn't work, right? It doesn't work. But it's hard. It's hard. I fought a battle within myself on the way to church this morning. She's the witness. And when she said you really she when she said grumbling and complaining won't help. Oh, boy. That was really helpful. I hate it when she's right. And my loving response to her was now I am mad. That's good. But see, I was wrestling internally with some things. Just it's hard. It's hard. I fail, I don't obey the Lord's commands, then I get mad that I don't obey, and I get mad because I can't obey, then I get mad because I have to be humble and admit that I can't obey. You know, and it just... Any? Am I by myself? Okay. All right, good. Vet, you and I will hang out. That should be fun. All right. It's hard. But it takes a conscious, willful effort to humble ourselves before the Scriptures. We say, I don't feel like it. It looks impossible. It seems hopeless. It even seems ridiculous. But this is what the Lord says in his word. And I believe it's true. So I humbly bow myself before this and try to do it. 
try to obey it. But my point is, it's not easy. It's not easy. Combos. Mm. Do they even still make combos? I don't know. Anybody even eat combos anymore? I guess not. When I moved here, the kids were asking at the club were asking for talkies. Is that what they're called? I'm like, dude, I don't know. Walkie talkies? What are you? I don't know. What about combos? Doesn't anybody eat combos anymore? Bugles? Anyone eat bugles? Okay. Michelle, I'll take some. I thought of combos. When it comes to an issue of responding in a godly way to those who wrong me, I'm reminded that the Christian life has to be a combination of believing and living. And, you know, when we live out what we say we believe, it deepens our conviction of what we believe. But so often we just kind of get into this thing where it's all knowledge, 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 believe, believe, believe. And then when we have that moment of crisis or that moment where we see life and scripture intersecting and the heat is on or the pressure gets turned up. You know, we were up in Ontario for a wedding and we went to the Graber Olive Company and they have these massive steel industrial uh, I don't know, steam purifiers or whatever. After they put the olives in the can, they put 1,200 cans of olives. No, wait, 3,200 cans of olives at a time in this pressurizer thing to, I don't know, does that keep the germs out? I don't know what it does. All I know is it was cool looking and it was huge and it was shiny. That's all I need to know. But the pressure, and you start talking about the pounds of pressure. Uh, but when... My beliefs intersect with living. That, that, that's not only a test, it's not only a challenge, but it's an opportunity for growth. But in the moment of the suffering, in the moment of the crisis or the conflict, or in the moment of being wronged, I know our brains don't often work like that. We have to pause, we have to backtrack, maybe we need to do some planning. Huh? But there needs to be... That combination of living and believing. Uh, and that involves specific accountability. And we've mentioned accountability to what? To whom? Accountability to the scriptures. When that pressure comes, when life comes, when the situation comes. I need the word of God to set the parameters, to set the boundaries, to give me the guidance of how to deal with it. One great old time theologian said... Seeing that so many preach Christ and so few live Christ, I will aim to live him. I thought that was really good. Isn't that our challenge, right? To live Christ, right? I mean, it's one thing, you know, to say, hey, yeah, I believe. But then when it comes time to live it, that's rough. Very interesting. Sir Julian Huxley was a major evolutionist. Rejected Christ, rejected the scriptures as just a myth. But someone asked him what he thought about Christians. And he said, well, this is what I think about a real Christian, that it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian. It just takes all of him. This is an unbeliever saying that. But to be a true Christian, he understood that you had to count the cost and understand that the Lord required every single part of me.
every corner of my life. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let's set up the context of our passage. Two very well-known verses. In fact, if you're going to memorize Scripture, uh, which every Christian really should be, uh, these are two that you need to put in your Scripture toolbox. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Then you can read verse 2 with me. What's it say? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the opening verses of chapter 12 tell me that in order to accomplish verses 14 through 21 is really supernatural living. Right? Well, maybe you're saying, I don't know what 14 through 21 says. Well, let's read it. That's probably a good idea. Romans 12, 14. And just remember how much Paul's words sound like Jesus' words from Luke 6. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Don't ever pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, because it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, because by doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you're like me. You're thinking, ain't no way, no how I'm going to be able to do that. Jesus did that because he was God. See, I say it too. (laughs) We're tempted to say it. Folks, the opening verses of chapter 12 call me to make a commitment to supernatural living. To respond to someone who has wronged me in the way that God wants me to respond is going to take a work of God in my own life. Actually, my response to those who wrong me actually reveals my own heart more than it does the offender's heart. Mm, Now you're not as excited, right? Mm, As long as I kept the focus on the perpetrator, you were with me. But as always, what? Romans 8. God works all things together for good for those who love him and been called according to his purpose that we might be conformed into the image of his son. Even in situations where I'm wronged, I'm called to respond in a godly way. And that response is fashioning me more into the image of Christ because I'm being called to emulate the way he responded when wronged. Wow. That's a deep anchor. Isn't that a deep anchor? Right. Because we have we have our responses lined up. We have our agenda. We have our plan. We have our list of rights. We have our wants. And then the Lord comes in and says, "Uh uh uh. Imitate me, he says. Imitate me. 
You leave all the punishment, all the judgment, all the wrath. All, you leave that to me. You're in no position to be meeting out your own form of judgment. In fact, the Lord says, I'm going to tell you something you're not going to want to hear. It may shock you. I love your perpetrator. I want your perpetrator to confess his sins and repent and come to saving faith in me. And if you retaliate with your own form of vengeance, you're going to actually expand the very evil you're trying to put out. Hmm. You guys. Oh, I wish you guys. <laughs> you guys are like this. That holy frown. The holy frown is better than a. What's the what was <laughs> the holy frown is better than the what? The, I don't know. The unsafe. <laughs> I don't know. But you guys are like. Oh, fuck. It's hard. It's supernatural, isn't it? And by the way, remember, our Lord was able to practice self-control when wronged because his major concern was his father's glory, not his own. And when I'm wronged, what often happens is I my heart is unveiled and I see that I'm more interested in my own glory than God's glory. That's what's painful about it and hard. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't jump to conclusions. We're not saying that we're doormats, that we're a whipping post, that we're, you know, we're going to cover all that in the weeks to come. But we follow God's agenda, right? Not our own. Supernatural living, Romans 12, 1 and 2, means that I become in practice what I am in position before God. It's conforming my outer life to come in line with my inner life. I'm talking about as a Christian. Do you understand what I mean when I say my position? In other words, because of Jesus Christ, my position before God is holy, is righteous. When God looks at me, he looks at me through the person of Christ. And so he sees Christ. That is my position. However, as I live this life on earth, I've got to constantly work at bringing my practice into alignment with my position. If you want the big fancy words, the salvation part is called positional sanctification. I'm made holy before God. Then the growth of coming in line with my position is called progressive sanctification. Because of Christ, I'm good with God. But until I stand in the Lord's presence physically, I've got to disciple myself or be discipled by God and Christ to learn how to live up to my position. And he gives me all the resources to be able to do that. That's what this passage is all about. Because he says what in verse two, don't be conformed any longer to this world, but be what? Transformed. The Greek word metamorphosis. It's like we're all beautiful butterflies. Because what? A moth builds a cocoon and then he comes out as a beautiful butterfly. You've never thought of me as a beautiful butterfly, I'm sure. But I am. The biggest one you've ever seen. But that's what that word there is. Transformed. Metamorphosis. It's a process. And it will not end... Until Jesus is giving you a hug. I'm convinced Jesus is a hugger. I wasn't a hugger until I moved here. I've been converted. 
In fact, we were with dear friends that we grew up with over the weekend at the wedding of their son. And we're saying goodbye. She's hugging everybody. And Susan goes, shake my hand. She goes, I know you don't like hugging. I said, oh, I've changed. I've converted. I've changed. So I got a hug. Didn't I? And she hugged me. She said, I was going to hug you anyway. I just know you don't like it. It's interesting. One of those Philippians verses says, God is at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that interesting? God is at work in us both to give us the will to live for him and to line up the good works that we should do for him. Why would Paul tell the Philippians, God will give you the will, the desire to live for him? What's implied there? Come on, it's bad news. Just say it. I need to be given the will to live for God many times because of myself. I don't have it. Right. Come on, let's be real. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes it's like, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do, Lord, but it's the last thing that I really want to do. And I have prayed that prayer many times. Lord, give me the desire to obey you. Now, I have obeyed the Lord many times without the desire to obey because we can do that. But I think the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And I think it's very important that the heart be there as well as the hands. But sometimes we don't have it, right? And we have to pray for it. That's supernatural living. We say supernatural living. We're not talking about anything mystical. But we're talking about practical living within the divinely ordained parameters of God's word. Supernatural living means I understand what God is calling me to do and how he empowers me to do it in his word. It's not going by feelings. It's not going by good intentions because we really get in trouble because we always we we, we many times have good intentions of following the Lord. But it takes more than that. It, It takes a willingness to know what the scriptures say and to bring my life through practice over a long period of time into conformity. And it starts with the thinking, because he says in Romans 12 two, be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind, which is the thinking. Change always begins in the thinking. Always. We have been free from the bondage of sin, but now... We are enslaved to the righteousness of God. A lot of us Christians forget about this. We rejoice that we've been set free from the bondage of sin and death, which is true. But the truth of the matter is we're still slaves. Only now we're slaves to God. We are slaves to righteousness. We have been set free so that we can now be pleasing to God. And if that's what slavery to God is, then sign me up. What is Paul's M.O. in the whole book of Romans? Don't panic. We're not going through the whole book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11. This is typical of Paul's writing. He'll lay down the theology. He'll lay down the teaching. And then he'll finish up his letters with practical things. So he spends 11 chapters 
talking about sin and salvation, justification, sanctification. Basically, he's talking about this is what happens in the heavenly realms when you get saved. He spends 11 chapters talking about that. And he lays the foundation that every person ever conceived is in need of salvation. Then you come to chapter 12 and verse 1. And what's the first word in chapter 12, verse 1? Therefore, and you know the rule, right? When you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask, what's it there for? That's a good, that is a good hermeneutical rule for interpreting scripture. When you see the word therefore, you ask, what is this therefore? He's saying, therefore, based on what I've just written in the first 11 chapters. I urge you by the mercies of God to give your lives to him. That wonderful, mind boggling overwhelming, inexplicable plan of God to save sinners and give them eternal life should therefore motivate me to live for him. You could call Romans how great a salvation if you wanted to give the book of Romans a name. That's one of the things I ask myself when I'm in a funk and I'm really struggling uh, do I understand and appreciate what God has done to save me? And I'll go back and I'll review. That lights a fire. He makes an appeal for us to live for God based on all that truth in the first 11 chapters. So he's going to spend chapters 12 through 16 of Romans. Paul's now going to show us Actually, how we can live for God day by day in the nuts and bolts of life. He's laid 11 chapters of principles and teaching and theology. Now he's going to do five chapters of practical living day to day. And is it not a practical thing to learn how to respond to those who are mistreating us? I mean, that's that's pretty real. So he spends verses three through 13 talking about spiritual gifts the proper use of the gifts the Holy Spirit gives to Christians in the church to honor God and to bless the church. And then we get to verse 14, uh, our passage. I want to point out, you might want to circle verse 9 or highlight the word love. Everything from verse 9 on down to verse 21 has love at the center, has love as the motivation. Doing what is best for another person within the boundaries of Scripture. Once again, Scripture defines love. The world doesn't define love. It's almost like you draw a bullseye. Verse 9 and love is in the center. And then you start moving out. The next circle, uh, verses 10 through 13. Then the next circle, verses 14 through 16. And then a final circle, would be verses 17 through 21. And we'll see that it's a mixture of relationships between believers and believers and between believers and unbelievers. The motivation is love, love for God, love for others. That is the reason that I would desire to overcome evil with good. 
Because I know that God is love and I am called to show love even to those who wrong me. Because that's what God, that's what Christ has commanded me to do. And he set the example. Keep going back to that example because you're going to find your knuckles tensing up. You're going to find your neck getting stiff. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't. Go back to Luke 6, starting in verse 27, and read what the Lord said. Then go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read verse 23 of what Peter wrote about how Jesus responded. And remember, we are to imitate our Lord. We're just going to cover this one word and then we'll stop for today. We're going to start with the last verse. Verse 21, because verse 21 is the goal. Verse 21 is the culmination of where all this will be heading over the next three weeks. It is interesting Overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word overcome is a military word. It's interesting. Jot it down, but don't turn there. The end of Numbers chapter 13 into the beginning of chapter 14. Moses chooses 12 spies for Israel to go into the promised land to scout it out. They come back. Two of those men that were sent had a very good report, Joshua and Caleb. They said, the land is better than anything we've ever seen. It's flowing with milk and honey. The Lord God already told us it was ours. Yes, by the way, there's some pretty formidable enemies there. And we're going to have to take some time to root out those enemies. But they say, God has told us we are convinced that we can overcome them. Of course, you know, the rest of the story, the other ten said what? Stone those two guys to death because we're not doing that. That's what they said. Those enemies are too scary. We know God said that land is ours, but we're afraid. And we need to shut those two up who are telling us to take a risk based on God's word. In the scripture passage in Numbers 14 says, and they said, let's stone them to death. Of course, they didn't. So, but the same word overcome. Military word talking about victory. Revelation chapter three, I think it's verse 21, defines an overcomer as a Christian. That's the simple definition. Who is an overcomer? A born again believer in Jesus Christ. A Christian is an overcomer. If you're here today and you have accepted Christ as your savior, you are an overcomer. You are a winner. Everybody loves a winner. You're all winners. But it's true. That is what it means. Now, but some of us winners think like losers. And that's what Paul is saying. You need to turn your mentality around about all of this when you're wronged. You need to think like an overcomer. You need to think like a winner. You need to think like Jesus. You need to understand what it means to be an overcomer. So we're going to look at that through the next few weeks. We're going to look at what is the evil he's talking about? What is the good that he's talking about that I'm supposed to do? And what, why is he talking about rejoicing with people and weeping with people? We'll see what all of that means. 
God will not settle for maintenance thinking or defeatist thinking. He wants to see positive advance in thinking. The battle is not just a challenge, but an opportunity for advance in your Christian life. This is one reason he allows evil to come your way. Hmm. Romans 8, 28, we already mentioned it in 29, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. That is God's goal if you are his child. He wants you to be like Jesus so that the world can see Jesus. One of the ways the world can see Jesus in you is how you respond when you have been wronged. I can tell by your face that you're thinking, that's tough stuff. <laughs> it is, but it's, it's amazing. It's possible. That's the other thing. I don't know if I had another. We need to remember that if the Lord has put such a challenge on our plate, we need to think like an overcomer and remember every challenge means that there's the possibility for me to do the right thing. Don't be overcome by the wrongs that others do to you. We must recognize that every command and requirement of Christ reflects a genuine possibility. He knows our limitations. He knows our strengths. He knows what we can handle. And sometimes all I have to accept that is faith, right? Because I'm thinking, I can't take it anymore. And I'm thinking, this is hopeless. But... What have the scriptures said this morning? Do not be overcome by those who are doing wrong against you. But you are going to learn how to overcome that wrong by doing good. The scriptures say that darkness is no challenge for light. The scriptures say that evil doesn't stand a chance against good. Those are the facts. And so we want to learn to live. Ooh, go back. Sneak peek. Sneak peek. See it? Okay. I wasn't sure where I was. We want to make sure that we're thinking scripturally within the boundaries of our Lord's commands. So I'm excited. I'm excited about trying to overcome evil with good. It doesn't matter if it's on a national level. I think this passage is also talking about a very personal level because the wording that is used is pointing not to some generic general evil that's out there. It's talking about very specific wrongs that are being specifically directed toward me because I'm a Christian. And it can be as simple as, you know, I uh, got an opportunity to help counsel another brother in Christ, not even from this state, uh, but... He and his wife have uh, four, oh my word, is it four? Yeah, four kids. The oldest one is five years old. Wow. I wanted to go buy him a trophy. They traveled from eastern Pennsylvania to southern California in an RV this summer. Wow. Wow, there's a sitcom right there. But he was just sharing with me, he loves the Lord and he and his wife are a godly couple. But her parents are minimal Christians. Do you know what I mean by that? Yes, I'm a Christian, but they don't really aren't passionate about living by the scriptures or or pleasing the Lord. 
And he's really struggling because he's 33. Uh, has a great job as a banker. Provides for his family. But her parents have been nothing but critical of him since they got married. So that's been eight years. Very critical of the way they're raising their children. Calling them fanatics. So fanatical about this Jesus and church stuff. Uh, And he, we were just talking and he was just sharing his burden with me about uh, how does he respond to that? But, you know, because he just wants to retaliate, you know, he just wants to speak up. He just wants to. So where did we go? We go to Romans 12 verses 14 through 21. So my point is this passage isn't talking about evil that's just floating around out there somewhere else. It's talking about when I'm the object of wrongdoing simply because I'm a Christian. So I'm really excited about us digging into the word and learning what our Lord says. But I'm just even more excited about the growth in our walk with the Lord that can come if we make that commitment as hard as it might be to let Jesus shine through us when we've been wronged. Because it's hard. Okay, so let's stand together, pray. If you didn't realize that you've signed up for a journey the next few weeks, it might be bumpy at first, but it's going to be smooth at the end. Do you know we were uh, over in Ontario, and I guess there's an eight-mile stretch in Ontario that kind of goes into Upland, and it's on the National Register of Historic Places because the median is all tree-lined for eight miles, and traffic only one way on each side. But I guess back in the day, they had a, a trolley cart, and the mule would pull it up the hill. But then they would put the mule on it and let him ride back down. Uh, so that's what this ride is going to be like. On the way up, as we unpack our stuff, it's going to seem hard and tiring. But listen, when we get to the top and we learn what the Lord says and we understand how beautiful it is, it's going to be like we're coasting down. So, but the other thing I learned was when they put that mule in the field, he would only go one way. He wouldn't go back the other way. That's what he told us. From going up and riding down, he wouldn't go the other way. Anyway, I thought that was funny. Yeah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together this morning. I'm an extremely fallible, imperfect messenger. In fact, my prayer every week is, Lord, don't let me damage this text. Uh, so I pray that your spirit uh, will take your word, uh, not my word, your word, and just burn it into our hearts. Uh, And develop in us an extremely deep desire to be pleasing to you. Because, Father, we build these walls around our hearts to protect ourselves. Uh, But we're never really secure and protected if we're resisting your instruction. Uh, The peace, the harmony, the comfort, the joy we long for can only be found by obeying your commands. As unnatural and as abnormal as they may seem to our human nature. Father, we know that your will isn't necessarily. We we see in this text, you're not saying you're going to take our problem away. And I think that's an expectation that can get us into trouble. Expecting that that's what you want for us. A problem free life. That's not what you want for us. You want us 
to respond in a godly way in the midst of our problems so that the world can see you and your son, Jesus Christ, glorified. But, Father, we know I'm first in line that when our heart is revealed, we learn that that's not really our true desire. But, Father, we would pray that you would change our desires to be your desires. That by being willing to respond to evil perpetrated against us with good, by obeying your commands, that you would really enrich our lives with you. That you would deepen our faith, just broaden our pleasure and joy of being with you uh, in obedience. So, Father, I know there are many in our own congregation that are dealing with some really difficult things. And they're, they're tempted to say, yeah, that sounds good, but I just don't see it happening. Father, I pray you would pour out upon them an extra measure of faith uh, and trust. Uh, that they would place their confidence not in those that are committing wrong against them, that that person would change. But they would place their confidence in you, who is Lord over those who are perpetrating wrong. And that we, when we are wronged, that we would really return to the scriptures and seek to imitate our Lord. And to do what he's asked us to do, even if we may not understand the logic of it all completely. I pray over the next few weeks uh, that we would grow by leaps and bounds because of your word and your spirit. I pray that we would enter into even closer fellowship with one another. To come alongside one another, to strengthen each other, to speak the truth in love and to receive the truth spoken in love. That we would not journey through the difficulties in life alone. Uh, that we would be willing to be transparent and that we would be willing to get involved in each other's lives. So, Father, I just thank you for giving us your word. You haven't left us alone without a guide. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you most of all for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who set us the supreme example. The greatest act of good on that cross overcame the darkest evil ever known. The scriptures say that in his death, he rendered powerless both death and the devil. So may we follow his example, Lord, this week. May we search our hearts this week. May we look for ways to respond according to Romans 12, verses 14 through 21. So we thank you. We praise you for every good thing that happened here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being here, folks. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.